Hello and welcome to the Vacation Rental Success Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the kind sponsorship from Beyond. Founded by revenue management veterans from the airline and hospitality industries, Beyond is the leading revenue management software for vacation rental owners and managers. Listen in for the mid-episode break where you can find out how Beyond can help you and your vacation rental business. Let's get started. Here's your host, Heather Bayer. Today, I am talking to Dennis Hanks of the Florida Alliance for Vacation Rentals, formerly the Florida Vacation Rental Managers Association. This is the largest vacation rental alliance in the USA. And I'm going to be talking to Dennis about why networks such as these are so important to help hosts and managers navigate their way through regulations and legislation and also just to enable them to network like crazy. This is the Vacation Rental Success Podcast, keeping you up to date with news, views, information and resources on this rapidly changing short-term rental business. I'm your host, Heather Bayer, and with 25 years of experience in this industry, I'm making sure you know what's hot, what's not, what's new and what will help make your business a success. And welcome to another episode of the Vacation Rental Success Podcast. This is your host, Heather Bayer, and as ever, I'm super delighted to be back with you. As you know, I'm heading home to Ontario for the summer, for the late spring. Well, it's actually the start of spring. We don't get spring in Ontario until May. So heading home for the start of spring and the summer. And already I am, you know, even with the snow still on the ground and it's still a little bit in our dormant season, heading into what we call mud season when the snow melts, we are hearing about new regulations that are pending right the way across our cottage country. And I've mentioned this before, you know, I've talked to Rent Responsibly and we've discussed how we deal with the issues of regulations uh, at some length over the course of a number of podcasts in the past. And I'm hearing already that, you know, as I say, we've been through a dormant season and now they're all popping up again and the townships and municipalities are beginning to talk about this because they're seeing a very, very busy rental season coming up and they are naturally concerned about things like the disturbance of the peace of cottage country. They're concerned about partying and over-occupancy and in some cases they're just concerned about having strangers and people who, and this is in air quotes, don't belong, coming to their neck of the woods where they've decided that they're now going to retire to. So it's not just Ontario that's dealing with this, it's multiple areas, tiny little townships. Actually, I was going to say tiny townships. We do have a one region called Tiny Township. It's in a place called Tiny and they are dealing with regulation issues in that area as well. And I see all these little action groups popping up, little Facebook groups starting up, where owners, well, mostly hosts, are getting together to try and tackle the upcoming issues that are going to be posed to them by councils 
talking about different types of legislation. And it's not as though it's just one standard piece of legislation that's going to go through, that's going to cover every different township. Every single one has a different take on it. And it's, it's tough. So over the course of a couple of years in Ontario, we've got together with a number of other agencies and other rental, uh, rental agencies, and we've created the Ontario Cottage Rental Managers Association, which is the OCRMA. And it's very small. There's around 12 agency members in there at the moment, and we meet monthly. But we have, we have made some inroads. We lobbied the provincial government about a year ago. We wrote to them about rental bans that were uh, in place uh, during COVID. And we shared our thoughts on why we felt that cottage rental was safe because they were opening up hotels and resorts and bed and breakfast and guest houses and keeping cottage rentals shut. As you know, I've spoken about this. We were, we were shut down in 2020, in 2021, and again this year in January. So, you know, to the extent that we actually made some inroads, I'm not sure, we, but, but it's early days yet. But what we found was that a network such as this created a common voice. So earlier this year, I wanted some input from somebody who really knows about vacation rental management associations. And I went to Dennis Hanks, who is the executive director of the Florida Alliance for Vacation Rentals, and, and asked his advice on how we put together a network, what we do with it, and how we take that common voice forward. And he was just super helpful. So I thought this would be just a tremendous opportunity to ask Dennis Hanks to come on the show and to share his insights on how the largest vacation rental alliance in the USA started, what they do for their members. And they've got 1,300 members and representing 80,000 properties. So I think what he's going to tell us is going to be hugely insightful, particularly for those of you listening who are facing some form of regulations or legislation or having some issues with the community or an HOA and, and trying to tackle this in some way because every little helps. So without further ado, let's move on over to my discussion with Dennis Hanks of the Florida Alliance for Vacation Rentals. Uh, just a reminder that we will be breaking halfway through this interview to have a message from our sponsor, uh, Beyond, where Ryan Saylor, the Director of Partnerships, will be answering a pressing question from a manager. Well, I'm super delighted to have with me today Dennis Hanks, who is the Executive Director of the Florida Alliance for Vacation Rentals and hasn't always been FAVR, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about all sorts of things relating to creating such an alliance, how long this alliance has been around and what it was formerly, and why Dennis and his group at FAVR feel that education, which is one of my favourite topics, feel that education is one of the major tenets of creating a good network. Welcome, Dennis. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Heather, for having me on today. 
Well, it was such a pleasure talking to you about, I think it was about a month or six weeks ago, maybe longer. Time, time seems to travel very fast these days. And I wanted to pick your brains a little bit about a network because we have a very fledgling network in Ontario, the Ontario Cottage Rental Managers Association, and wanted to talk to you about that. And you were so super helpful that I thought, you know, that you've been massively helpful to me. Uh, and I thought you could bring this knowledge expertise to the listeners of this podcast and share with them your wisdom on networking and collaborating with others and coming together to create a common voice. So it is super great to have you with me. Tell me what your background is, though, in vacation rentals. Where did it all start for you? So for the vacation rental industry ourselves, my wife and I had vacation rentals in the past in New Hampshire, in Florida, when we were residing permanently in Massachusetts. So we had a mountaintop cabin up in New Hampshire, and then we had a a home here in Florida. And we operated those for probably about 10 years or so. So as far as experience managing those, that was our vacation rental experience. But my real background was in operating nonprofit management groups economic development, tourism initiatives. I worked in government, so state and local government. So I have a pretty diverse background as far as, you know, nonprofits and development goes. So it kind of went hand in hand taking on this whole favor initiative. Okay. So tell me about favor. How did this come about? Because it hasn't always been the Florida Alliance. So this is the, the real interesting history about it all is there were two different organizations in Florida at one time, both about 27 years old. And originally in Central Florida, there was a group called the Central Florida Property Managers Association. They later changed to the Central Florida Vacation Rental Managers Association. Then there was the statewide association that started in 1994, and they were called Florida Vacation Rental Management Association. So they both kind of worked independently. And when I moved to Florida in 2013, I actually applied for a part-time position. We were on vacation here and sitting in our vacation home, and I see this article and it says, we're looking for somebody part-time to run this Central Florida group. So I replied to that and then the rest is history, I became the executive director of that Central Florida group. And these both of these organizations are really driven by all volunteers. They really never had any structured staff or someone organizing it. A year after taking on that Central Florida group, I was approached by the statewide association and they said, hey, how'd you like to run our group too? So I'm running both of these groups independently. And then I said, this is kind of crazy. You guys do the same thing, just in the same state. So we merged both together and came up with a plan of chaptering out the entire state of Florida with a central Florida, a northwest Florida, a northeast. So we today we have eight chapters statewide. And each one of those is represented on our board of directors for the entire state association, which is now the Florida Alliance. We've changed our name this year because we really wanted to distinguish ourselves as a standalone vacation rental alliance in Florida. We're not affiliated with any national association or any other association. So we really wanted to be a standalone and let people know that we're just here for Florida. And that's really kind of the the crux of where we are today and and what we're doing as far as uh, the market in 2022. So let's go back to 27 years ago when this all started. What were the goals of the original organizations? What were they setting themselves out to do? 
So the interesting thing, just as we have going on everywhere today, 27 years ago, well, 28 years in April, it was reactionary to government regulations. Believe it or not, 28 years ago, it was still government regulations that were stepping in and causing issues. So we're still battling those today. But everyone reacted to that. They formed this group and pulled together a a group of property managers and vendors. And from there, it just started growing and growing. You know, back in 2015, when we merged both of these Florida associations, we only had about 150 members. And today we're at about 1,300 members and about 80,000 properties represented between the the group. So it's taken on a life of its own. That's astonishing. Astonishing the numbers. You know, I I look at our little fledgling fledgling group of of 12 or we're just coming up on 13 property management companies. Having said that, you know, it's <laughs> there aren't that there aren't that many <laughs> in our part of the world anyway and we we are slowly bringing them all in. But that is quite a herculean task, I think, you know, reining in all those separate well the separate chapters but but all those hosts, managers. And I know we're going to talk in a moment about the fact that it's not just a manager's association. It, it, it has a much wider remit to bring in independent owners as well. But let's just continue to look back a bit. This has obviously been successful over the past 27 years, or else you wouldn't still be in existence. So what have been the major achievements? So behind it, you know, whatever thing that, that started in the industry, it was really about regulations. We've seen over the years a lot of things that have come up that were really big impediments to the market here in Florida. Local regulations, state regulations. At one time, they tried to put sprinklers in every home in the state of Florida. So if you were a vacation rental, they wanted a sprinkler system in. So your little three-bedroom home in the country now is going to have a sprinkler system and hardwired alarm systems and just like any type of commercial building. So we fought those things back. We ended up knowing that we had to hire a legal counsel. We had to hire a lobbyist. So as we started growing, these things just started evolving in the industry. Those are really important things of of what they were looking to do and what brought the industry together. Unfortunately, in our industry, we come together on a crisis. And then when the crisis is averted, they kind of retrench a little bit and everybody gets you know, kind of let's just do our business and move along and not be involved. And that's just such a huge mistake with our industry. We need to keep people involved day to day and just understanding this industry. So you've, over the years, you've been dealing with statewide issues, statewide legislation, uh, proposed regulations, but also, I'm sure, more localised output, shall we say, from township. I mean, this is what we have is... It's like whack-a-mole. You know, the moment you sort of tap down one municipality, another one pops up, pops up. And we have no provincial legislation whatsoever. There's nothing out there that legislates for the short-term rental industry, apart from in Toronto, in in the urban area. So how is all this sort of spread out between the wider statewide legislation and and what happens more locally? So the good thing, and and probably one of the major accomplishments that we have as an industry and as an association was in 2011, Florida's uh, state statute was created for vacation rentals. And it was a preemption, which very few states in in the country have. And the preemption basically said that no local government can prohibit vacation rentals, and they can't touch duration or frequency of the vacation rentals unless they had an ordinance already grandfathered and in place before 2011. So 
that helped us out tremendously because there was probably only about a dozen or so cities and counties that had some type of ordinance in place pre-2011. So that was huge for us. Getting that preemption in place and, and fighting for that and getting it approved in 2011 protected this industry for years and years, and right up until today. It has been amended a little bit, and it gives a little more control back to the local communities. But the local communities now know that they can't get rid of vacation rentals, nor should they even want to with a $30 billion a year industry here in Florida. I mean, I think COVID brought about a completely different awareness of the industry. And people are like, wow, these guys are bringing in millions and millions of dollars on an annual basis. I mean, Walton County and the Panhandle is like $55 million a year in just bed tax alone. So it brought in that, that understanding, but it also limited the local governments so that they couldn't really continue to force more regulations on the vacational industry. Some are very, very strict. We have some that are the worst in the country. Uh, they seem to skirt around the state statute a little bit and come up with some type of inspection and regulation and things like that. But people are still surviving and working around it to the best of their ability. But every community is different. And that's what we tell people that are newbies trying to get into this industry or buying a home. Know your market. Know where you can do things and where you can't you know, you may go from one community that has uh, daily rentals, the next community across the street might have seven-day minimums, the next one may have 30-day minimums. Every single one is different. So when you're investing or you're, you're getting together in this market, you've got to make sure you know what's going on. Just stepping back to 2011 a second and the state t statute for vacation rentals, how long did that take to go into effect? What was the sort of timeline on on that before the statute was put into the books, if you like. So in 2010, uh, I believe 2010 was the time when the sprinkler ordinance was being pushed statewide, which ended up dying in 2010. So I think the industry knew at that time, hey, we've got to do something to protect ourselves. And immediately they started working on this 2011 language for the next legislative session. Because in here, here in Florida, legislative session is three months out of the year is when they get together and they make statutes and laws. So it immediately came up in 2011. It was passed and it was activated that very same year. Usually what happens if you pass something in January, that July that it'll be activated mm -hmm. in the same calendar year. So that came about really quickly. And then, like I say, we had some amendments in 2014. It relaxed it a little bit, but we still maintain that preemption on prohibition, frequency, and duration. So, so what involvement did FLVRMA, uh, FVRMA, which is what you were at that time, what, what involved, I mean, clearly you had major involvement in getting this statute passed. What, you know, did you have, a, did you hire lobbying groups or did you just get everybody to write letters? I mean, th this is the sort of thing that we're tackling at the moment. And uh, so, so this is very personal to me. It's understanding how this all works. <laughs> yeah, it was really a team effort. We hired an attorney. We hired a lobbyist from the association that were working on this. Uh, the good thing is uh, we had a firm that we were using that was writing the legislation and drafting information and pulling this all together. And if you think back in 2011, we were the first to come in with a preemption in the country. So it was new. It wasn't something that we said, let's copy what another state has. Mm -hmm. It was really drafted and created brand new. And then the industry folks around 
Florida get together and they helped push this. You know, a lot of the larger property managers were involved in writing letters and lobbying themselves with their local senators and state representatives. So it was a team effort moving forward on that. Yeah, that that's useful to know, and and we we've done it in a very small small scale. In fact, uh, you know, dur- during COVID, and I was mentioning this in in the introduction, we were shut down for three months, then five months in 2020, and then uh, even January of this year, they shut us down again. And we sent letters, we wrote to the provincial government, and we don't we don't know whether <laughs> what what we did, what our joint effort was. To, to actually get that, those bans lifted, but they were, and we all had great summers. I'm just so glad that COVID, that it didn't happen in the middle <laughs> of the summer. That would have been a very different thing, but it's given us a lot of practice, in fact, in putting pen to paper or fingers to a keyboard and firing letters off and just bombarding people. But that's, that's a, that, you know, thank you for that. I think we need to invite you to our OCRMA meeting <laughs> to, to have a discussion. <laughs> um, okay, so there's obviously challenges involved in building this massive network that you have. What, what, what are the largest ones that you face? So, I mean, the local regulations are always ongoing. We don't ever see that local regulations are going to go away. Um, Keeping people involved is always something that is, is our biggest challenge. And like you mentioned about COVID, we were shut down for several months as well, March to May. And we had 30,000 people that started getting engaging and writing letters and emailing and calling. At one time, state government said, please stop. You've blocked all our phones up. You've shut down our emails. Please stop. We get it. We get the message. And then after COVID and everybody's opened up and everybody's firing on all cylinders again and they're doing well, that 30,000 dropped down to about 1,000 engaging in the next legislative session. So we're like, folks, you've got to stay involved. Mm -hmm. And it really is that engagement. Even on our chapter level, you know, some of our chapter folks, they get really frustrated. They say, only 12 people came out to our chapter meeting this month. And I go, you know, that's 12 people that you just got to keep engaged because- 90%, 90%, you know, 10% of the people do 90% of the work. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And it's just, you can't, you can't let that stop you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, and I, and I love that idea about engagement because not everybody is, is, is passionate about a cause. They're, they're more happy to, uh, to sit back. As you say, you know, once, once, once the panic is over, you know, let's sit back and just go back to our original business and everything will just run along smoothly. But it is so important to have these people who are passionate about the cause and get them out and bring in more, uh, I guess. Because there's always going to be another cause. I mean, we see that continuously in our industry. There's a new bill or something comes up and you say, yeah, that's not going to really affect me. But it does. I mean, one instance could be the human trafficking bill that came out a year ago. In Florida now, there's a bill that's been passed, and I don't know if anyone knows this, but Florida is ranked number three in the United States for human trafficking. And when you think of human trafficking, it's not necessarily what you see in the movies. They snatch some young girl and take her to another country. It's trafficking here in this state. It could be for agricultural reasons, people getting their passport held and they're working at a restaurant or they're working in the field somewhere. It could be for sex or prostitution and things like that. There's just so much of a different type of that. And now you have to be aware of those situations in all hospitality. So a law was passed saying that 
everyone who has contact with a guest now has to have two hours of human trafficking awareness training. So that's one of those educational things that we work on, but it's mandatory by state licensing now that you take that course. So things like that are always coming up in the legislature and in in local government. So you've got to be aware of it and you've got to stay engaged. A lot of people have been caught saying, I didn't know I needed this training. And we go, well, we've told you by about 25 emails. (laughs) You should have seen that. (laughs) Yeah, ignorance is no excuse. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're going to break here just for a second to uh, hear a message from our sponsor, from Ryan Saylor of Beyond. Well, welcome back to Ryan Saylor from Beyond. And this question is, how can I customize my pricing strategy with Beyond? Yeah, it really all starts with that base price. So you're going to set a base price for each of your listings. It's a unique value that really, really comes down from historical data or how guests perceive the value of your listing in your market. So you start there on customizing. You can also set a minimum price. So if you have a minimum for owners or even operationally, you can set that and our tool will never push a price below that minimum. We have plenty of other customizations like last minute discounts. Sometimes you can set automatic discounts for inventory that's available over the next three, five, seven days, whatever you like, that ultimately drops your price and makes it easier for a guest to book and and more attractive last minute when that night might disappear. You can also set up customized minimum stay requirements throughout the entire year or seasonally. Uh, You can set seasonal minimum prices, maximum prices, check-in, check-out days. There's plenty at your fingertips to build with and beyond. Uh, that we can all walk you through from the support standpoint and all of our support documentation to really understand what's necessary for your market. Not all markets are the same or what's what's necessary for your property, but whatever current setup that you have, you can build within beyond pricing. And then um, those are also going to be the levers that you use in your pricing strategy moving forward. So if a property is overperforming or underperforming, those are all the customizations that you'll change in beyond to uh, ultimately optimize your strategy moving forward. Yeah, that sounds like there is a lot available for for people to think about just beyond simple supply and demand. Yeah, beyond pricing. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Oh, thank you, Ryan Saylor, for that message. Now back to Dennis. This is a great conversation. I'm learning a lot. And my next question is really about is, is, is a big one because... You know, I've been in this business 20 years. And when we started out, there there were a a lot of people went with an agency, a rental management agency, because it was the way to do it. There weren't the platforms out there that there are now. And now, of course, with all the major platforms, it's made it hugely easy for independent hosts to go out there, list their property, and away they go. But the FAVR favor is not just for management companies. It's for independent hosts too. How did you navigate the challenges of including independent hosts within a network that that was uh, predominantly management focused? Well, as you can imagine, we did have some pushback from some of the property managers that said, why do we want to allow these amateurs to be in the market? And, you know, it is true to some extent. We do see a lot more complexity with the owner operators that are in the market. And it's mostly due to a lot of lack of education too. Technology has changed so much that these new owner operators um, are using technology more. 
Um, they're operating their own units. You know, one example that I like to use is one person on our board of directors that owns two homes. She has two homes and they're probably valued at somewhere around $20 million. I mean, the, what the value is to those two homes and the investment that that person has in those properties is tremendous. And if you think about it, they have so much more invested in these these units than the person who's managing someone else's homes in some cases. So it was an important part of the market that we thought that we wanted to introduce in because there's such a significant amount of them. In Florida, we estimate that 70% of the rentals in Florida are with people that have five or less homes. And I think that's a trend that's growing on across the country now. So we invited them in, we made it a low bar of entry, but there were some requirements. You had to be licensed. If you weren't, you had to get licensed within 60 days. You had to go through some of our training courses. And that's continuing on as we move forward is to qualify people, to build them up, to make them aware of what they have to do that's right to operate in the industry. And I think we alleviated a lot of the concerns of the property managers who said, well, what? Are, why do we want to let these people in? Well, many cases, some of these people, when they learn how to do it the right way, they don't want to do it anymore. They're like, let me give it to a property manager. Tell me somebody who can handle this for me because I'm tired of doing it. It takes too much effort. Uh, it was funny. I was on another podcast earlier this week, and the gentleman on there is a mortgage broker, and he has one home that he, he rents out. He says, Dennis, I've been in that house twice since I've bought it. I gave it to a property manager because I was like, I don't want anything to do with this operation. You furnish it. You take care of it. You send me the bills. You tell me what I'm going to make. And he gave it to the property manager. He says, it was the best thing I've ever done. I am hands off and I just don't want it. I want the home, but I don't want the responsibility. So he's got somebody managing it. So I think that's kind of what we've seen in this market now and how these owner operators have kind of integrated into our association. And there's just more and more, and we probably have 400 owner-operators that are in the, the industry right now and in our association statewide. And they've contributed a lot, and, and they've learned a lot. That's been one of the most important things. I love that. I love that. Because that argument that we often, and I often see it, hear it from other property managers is is that you know you, you bring in the independent owners and it's diluting what we're bringing to the table as as managers and we're trying to differentiate ourselves from you know managers on the one side and independent operators on the other and you know personally I think there are so many responsible and professional owner operators out there that it's just so worthwhile bringing them into an organization where they can contribute yeah, we've had one gentleman that was part of the association. He owned three homes. He was a retired teacher and he was a historian. So he's now retired completely and sold his homes. But he was so involved in his, his rentals that he would take people on guided tours. I mean, he was just all in when it came to this. And it, there was so much life to what he did with his guests and so much of that guest experience those are some really unique people that are in the industry that we can use as mentors. And we've, we usually said, Hey, you got to talk to Henry. Henry really does it right. Or, you know, talk to so-and-so because they need a lot of guidance. And like I say, sometimes they don't continue to manage their own. They push it off to a, a property manager, but that education part, we knew that there was that kind of rogue group that gave us a black eye because they wouldn't do things right. But that's always going to happen. And we've even had that with some professional property managers. We've had some professional property managers, you know, during the COVID era that 
took yes money and ran and closed their business. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you got to look at both sides of it. There's there's always a the good and bad in both sides of of that argument. So educate. You've mentioned education a couple of times, and you know it, it, it's it's been a staple of the association for many years. Can you explain why you see it as as so important? Yes, we. I mean, we started education probably 15 years ago, well before I was here. A lot of the volunteers got together, and they had a very loose certification type program where people would come in every other month or so and they'd take a course and they'd write down on a written test, you know, the answers to the questions, but it was a start. And it was somewhere where we could say, we've been doing this for a long time because quite frankly, what we see with the growth of our industry in Florida, I mean, we're, we're a $30 billion industry a year in Florida. There's 275,000 vacation rental homes in Florida it's bringing in, in some cases, in some counties, more than the hotels. And be, be, right around COVID, we had a study that was done that we were creating five jobs every hour, I believe, was the number in Florida. So as all those numbers continue to grow and employment grows, we foresee someday the state's going to say, you know what? You have to be licensed and take courses to be a realtor. You have mm-hmm. to have license and take courses to be a community manager. You're going to need licensing courses to be a vacation rental manager. So we see that is going to happen someday. So we want to be ahead of the curve with this, this course and licensing. So what we did is we've stepped it up about six years ago, and we had a local college that worked with putting curriculum together. And we now have a certification course with credits and continuing education credits that continues to evolve so that you can be certified as a property manager in Florida through our association. It's not mandatory, but it's something where we've been able to build a lot of credibility with that. Uh, We sit on the state licensing board for vacation rentals in Tallahassee at the Capitol. So we're being really cautious about how we move forward on this, but we know that education is going to play a huge role as we move forward in this industry and the growth that's happening. I, I love this. I, I really do. Um, years ago, we, we we were at a Cottage Life show in Toronto, which is a big event where we attract new owners to the organisation. And I have never forgotten, you know, standing at the booth and a lady coming past and, and she, she sort of stood there and as they do, they look around thinking and you can see it's going in their head, Cottage Link Rental Management, what is this? And, you know, we, I explained it to her that um, cottage rental is a thing and she wasn't really aware of that, that you could do this. And she, she said, well, what else do you do? I said, well, we help owners understand and we, we do some education because we do some education within the company of our owners about, um, you know, how you do it properly. And she said, why would I need anybody to tell me how to do it? <laughs> um, it's, it's common sense. And, and she walked off. I would imagine she went off to rent her own place and never had a second thought about it. But I, I love the idea of education. There's so much to know about the industry. And you see on Facebook forums, you know, Facebook groups all the time, you know, somebody has a question and a, and a gazillion people leap in with all their answers, <laughs> some of which are so off the wall. And you think, are you seriously considering doing this? Um, <laughs> I agree on that one. It drives me crazy. Sometimes I have to get off that whole platform and say, I can't answer any more of these questions. <laughs> <laughs> I know, there's, you know, in, in, in every industry, there is 
you know, there's an army of chief instant experts because we've done it for five minutes and it, it, it will never change. Um, but I love the idea that in an organisation such as this, you make it easy for people to come and get the education should they wish to. And a lot of that is really some of the things that they just need to know as far as regulatory. Yeah. You know, when you look at I mentioned human trafficking awareness earlier, but, you know, that in itself, the licensing aspect, what are you required to do locally? But what about service animals? What can you say or cannot say to a person with a service animal? And now we have a law on emotional support animals. So how do you treat emotional support animals? You know, one guy says, ah, I have a no pet home. And I go, yeah, that doesn't fly when it comes to a service animal. You still have to allow service animals in. No, I don't. I go, okay, well, we'll see you in court with somebody. (laughs) So it's a lot of those things that people think they know until they go through one of our courses and they go, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that my contract should have said this with a guest or my contract with the owner should have said this. And there's just so many loopholes and things that you can learn by sitting in a course. And I even say that on our events. When people come to our events, they go, why should I pay $50 to go to your event? And I go, well, if you walk away with one thing that saves you money or makes you gain more revenue, you've already paid for that course. It just makes sense to take the risk and do it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's interesting you bring up service animals because we've just been dealing dealing with this with an owner who says, you know, I don't accept pets. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not accepting any service animals and, you know, just explaining that this is, this is the case. You must accept that service animal, providing it is a true service animal. And then of course, on the other side, we deal all the time with the emotional support animals and the certificates that have been bought online and the letters from, we had one recently, or I saw one recently, a let, uh, that was on a Facebook group actually, which was a letter that somebody had provided from their ENT specialist about the emotional support animal they were bringing. Um, <laughs> but yes, it's, there's, there's so much out there on so many different aspects of the business, whether it's, you know, not being negligent and the safety aspects of it that you can't just get this information off a Facebook group. No, for sure. And and it may vary by state to state. So like I say, we have our own emotional support law here in Florida. So you have to abide by that. I mean, there's just so many things that you have to abide by in one state over another. So mm-hmm. it just, it makes sense. Dive into the education head first. And, you know, it's not mandatory with our association, but someday it probably will be. Yeah, exactly. So what current challenges are you working to address within the organization? Uh, Right now, it's really, we're working, of course, on regulatory things. We've, over the last five years, we probably engaged over 60 or 70 cities and counties in Florida. It's it's the game of whack-a-mole that you mentioned earlier. (laughs) You knock one down, another one comes up. It's noise ordinances. It's all the things that you have to. We partner along with a lot of our vendors And uh, folks like uh, Verbo and Airbnb and others that have government affairs officers in place. So we work collaboratively with them on on these items. But that's always going to be there. We know it. We are going to be introducing a brand new platform for grassroots efforts locally. And it's going to help out all of our members to give a little more ease at sending letters and petitions Mm -hmm. and things like that. It's a big investment for us, um, something we've been putting off for a while, but that's going to be taking place. And then the other thing is really engagement. I mean, we know that 
we're probably only tapping into a fraction of the people that are engaged with us in the state of Florida. It's such a big market. And getting them to understand the value of being part of this. Whether, you know, it's one guy said, I'm going to have to pay you $150 a year. What do I get? And I said, well, if you do nothing, that $150 a year helps to pay for our lobbyist in Tallahassee or our attorney that's working on something that's going to benefit you in the long run. I mean, it, it's an investment for, you know, a cup of coffee every day. You can have an investment that somebody's out there trying to protect your interests. So getting them to see the value, increasing that value is an important thing. Engagement on the local level. All of those that are challenges is just getting that awareness there. And, and I mentioned a little bit earlier that COVID kind of helped us in that aspect. Our membership actually grew during COVID. And it was because of that engagement and getting people involved. But even at the state level, you know, we were kind of, uh, I like to say sometimes we're the redheaded stepchild of the hospitality industry, but we're so involved and we have so much money coming in at $30 billion a year, they can't avoid having us at the table anymore. So we have a seat at the table. The director of state tourism, I think, finally realizes, wow, you guys are crushing it. And, you know, you're bringing this much money and hotels are bringing in less than you are. So they see the, the value of the industry now, which helps us to continue moving things ahead across the board. So it's really an awareness mm-hmm. with the owners, the managers, but also at the state level and constant getting engaged with these folks to let them know the vacation rental industry is here and it's here to stay. Well, that's great. So you don't just stop at, at having meetings and getting a message across through that format. Every year you have what's called the extravaganza conference. And I've, I've heard about this for a number of years. Who is it for? And what can people expect from it? And of course, when is the next one? Sure. So this year we are in Orlando again, which is our central location. So we're right on iDrive in Orlando, September 19th to the 21st. And we are going to have pretty much two full days of conference like we normally do. It's for anyone. Um, We have a lot of our exhibitors in the marketplace. I think we're going to probably have about 80 exhibitors in the marketplace this year. We'll have educational events throughout the two days, roundtable discussions, property managers and owners just talking about the things that are painting them in the industry right now and how they've overcome these situations. It really is for anyone because we have a little bit of everything that they can learn, they can network, they can share ideas. We really make it so that it's really grassroots. You know, we've had uh, some big speakers come in in the past and we pay tens of thousands of dollars to these speakers to come in, but you never really get what you need out of that conference unless you're really down to the grassroots level and you're discussing these things on the nitty gritty level and understanding how to overcome things and how someone else has done that. I've been to a lot of the conferences where, you know, somebody gets up there and they just bluster on for uh, half an hour or 45 minutes and you go, okay, well, we've heard that before. <laughs> we hope to not do any of that at our conference. It's hands-on. Yeah, exactly. And, and of course, people talk about conferences coming back and one of the huge values of them is that networking is just, as you say, grassroots talking to people who've who've been through the, exactly the same things that you have and can share their experiences. I mean, that's certainly the value that, um, the massive value I get out of them. But you also have a, a significant number of, of educational presentations as well. We do. We have educational presentations. Uh, last year, 
folks could come for the very first part of the sessions and they would gain three credits on each of their courses for their certification with us so they can get credits at the conference they can get information it really is across the board two days of just non-stop action-packed industry information coming out well, I know from, from conferences that I've organised in the past, it is, it's not an easy task to put something like that together. But of course, you have a larger organisation. And uh, what about people um, coming from outside of Florida? Is, it, is, this, um, is this worth their while to, to come to a, a, a sort of a, a state conference? It is because, you know, while some things are central to Florida, you still have a lot of the national vendors that will be there. The national vendors are there. Some national speakers will be there. And we'll talk about, you know, the topics that everybody's dealing with at any given time, whether it's technology. um, It could be something that's, you know, just as general among anybody in the industry that they could take advantage of. We do also some fundraising there because we're trying to raise money for our advocacy causes. But it's just a lot of fun and networking, getting to know people, whether they're in your state or not, you know, and what they're doing, which is similar to what you're doing anywhere in the country. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm going to put a, a, a link to Favor. <laughs> I'm going to put a link to the Florida Alliance for Vacation Rentals in the show notes and also a link to a page you can go and take a look at to find out about the Extravaganza 2022. So nice that conferences are back again. Dennis, it's been an absolute pleasure having you with me today. You've shared so much that I think will be inspiring and motivating to people listening, whether they're currently in an organisation of this nature or thinking of starting one, thinking of networking out and finding other people that they can get together because, you know, your your organisation with your 1,300 members started out with, with one or two and that's where everybody starts. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, huge pleasure talking to you and, you know, I, I hope we get to, uh, to do face-to-face at some time in the future. Great. Thank you for having me on today, Heather. Thank you, Dennis Hanks from the Florida Alliance for Vacation Rentals for sharing all that wisdom. I've, you know, I've, I found that really motivating, inspiring from little acorns, big oak trees grow, as we know. So if you're out there thinking, yeah, I don't have anywhere near 1300 uh, property management companies in our area. I've only got three or four. Well, bring them together, get in touch with them, be inspired start an organization that allows you to network with your peers. I'm very pro bringing in independent operators into an organization because they bring such huge value, can contribute such a lot. And on the whole, independent operators are responsible owners. They comply with the standards that are generally set for the industry in your area. Of course, there's going to be some rogues. Of course, there always will be those who are just out for a quick Airbnb listing and as much money as they can make and they don't care who comes in the property and what neighbours they disturb. That's always going to happen. These people aren't going to want to join an association that promotes responsible rental. So it's not as though you're going to be bringing in people to your organisation that is going to disrupt it in any way because they won't join anyway. And what you are doing is building your cohort of responsible property management companies and owners 
that will ultimately support your standards of operation and drive a movement towards this whole issue of responsible rental. Did I get across what I was trying to say there? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, basically the majority of us are professionals, whether we run or work with property management companies or whether we are independently operating a home. Let's be more open. Let's be more open and inclusive. So that's my take. My colleagues on the OCRMA know exactly where I stand on this one. And and I have been encouraging the thought of opening up the association to uh, independent hosts and owners. And uh, we'll see how that goes and I will share it with you. Okay, that is it for another week. Always a pleasure to be with you and share the insights that come from these leading people in this this industry. And I know for years, you know, I, I, I didn't explore sort of outside my own small area and find out what was going on in the wider industry. And I think it is always so valuable to keep an open mind, to listen to others, people who've been around the bazaars for many, many years, decades in some cases, and to learn from them. So I hope I, you know, I will continue to bring you a bevy of people just like Dennis Hanks. So thanks, Dennis, once again for joining me. And thank you, you, thank you to you, my audience, for joining me once again. If you get the chance to write me a review, I would love to hear it, just as as hosts and managers love to get those five-star reviews, so do I. So if you get the chance to go to your podcast provider of choice, whether it's uh, iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast and write me a review. I would really love it because the more reviews, the bigger the audience and the more people hear about all this wonderful stuff that uh, my guests are sharing. I will be with you, of course, next week as I continue to wend my way back to Ontario. You will hear about it when I get home. And (laughs) I just hope you have a great day. Thanks again for listening to this episode brought to you by Beyond. For more information and to connect with Beyond team, visit vacationrentalformula.com forward slash beyond or simply click the link in the description section of this episode on your smart device. It's been a pleasure as ever being with you. If there's anything you'd like to comment on, then join the conversation on the show notes for the episode at vacationrentalformula.com. We'd love to hear from you. And I look forward to being with you again next week.